Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-12, Bosnia and NATO. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. United Nations peacekeepers are having a difficult time keeping peace in Bosnia. New American President Bill Clinton sides with the Europeans and refuses to lift the arms embargo. The Bosnian Serbs are clearly winning the war and have no intention of stopping. The fighting between the Bosniaks and the Croats intensifies in Bosnia's Lashva Valley. And with that, let's discuss NATO's role in the Bosnian War. Bihać The Bihać pocket was a small Muslim enclave in western Bosnia that was literally surrounded by enemies on all sides. The Republic of Serbian Krajina in Croatia was to the west. Republika Srpska in Bosnia was to the east. And just north of Bihać was Velica Kladusa, a self-proclaimed autonomous province that no one recognized. Velica Kladusa was ruled by Fikret Abdić. Even though Fikret Abdić was a Bosniak Muslim, his band of militants fought alongside the Serbs against the Bosnian government. We discussed him briefly in episode 9 of this series. The Serbs absolutely needed to control the Bihać pocket. If they captured this region, they could use its rail lines and roads to ferry goods and personnel between the Republic of Serbian Krajina that is, Serbian Croatia, and Republika Srpska, that is, Serbian Bosnia. From 1992 to 1995, all three Serb entities bombarded Bihać with artillery. During this time, over 4,000 people were killed in the Bihać pocket. In April 1993, in the midst of this constant bombardment, the United Nations Security Council declared Bihać a safe area. But it took nearly two years for UN troops to actually arrive and secure the region. In the interval, the Serbs continued to pound away at Bihać. The United Nations finally sent troops to protect Bihać in August 1995, a month after the Srebrenica massacre. The Owen Stoltenberg Plan by the autumn of 1993, the United States was still determined to stay out of the quagmire in the Balkans. American troops were still operating in Kuwait, having recently expelled Saddam Hussein's forces. Right after that, the Americans took the lead on another UN mission, this time in Somalia. President Clinton was also preparing to host Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO leader Yasser Arafat at the White House to sign the Oslo Accords. This is all to say, the United States had its hands full. President Clinton was willing to let the Europeans handle things in Bosnia. But as we've seen so far, neither the UN nor the European community could get a handle on things in Bosnia. 
With a few exceptions, the Serbs were running rampant over the Muslims and the Croats weren't too far behind. Since the Americans weren't going to get involved, the UN and the EC decided it might be best to just give the Serbs what they wanted. This led to the Owen Stoltenberg Plan. British diplomat David Owen and Norwegian Foreign Minister Thorvald Stoltenberg came up with a proposal they called a Union of Three Republics. With this plan, the Bosnian Serbs would get a large chunk of territory which included the entire Bosnian border with Serbia. This territory would also include most of western Bosnia. Ultimately, the Serbs would control nearly half the country. The Bosnian Croats would get about 18% of Bosnia, mostly the southern part known as Herzegovina, and two segments in the north bordering Croatia. As for the Bosniaks, they'd be left with 33% of Bosnia, road links to the Bihać pocket and other isolated Muslim enclaves, and no access to the sea. The Muslims would not even keep Sarajevo since this ridiculous plan put it under UN administration. Despite its lopsided nature, there was some logic behind the Owen Stoltenberg plan. The UN and the Europeans felt the quickest way to end the fighting was to give the Serbs what they wanted. This plan divided Bosnia up based on current realities on the ground. Of course, it ignored the fact that this reality only existed because the UN imposed an arms embargo that prevented the Muslims from properly defending themselves. President Slobodan Milosevic of Serbia and President Franjo Tuđman of Croatia both agreed with this plan. The Bosnian Serbs and the Bosnian Croats also indicated they were willing to accept this plan as well. President Alija Izetbegovic of Bosnia said he would present the plan to his parliament and encourage them to vote yes. Two days later, however, he told a reporter that he did not really want to accept this plan. The Muslim Assembly of Bosnia rejected the Owen Stoltenberg plan and the fighting continued. The Ethnic Cleansing Process the Serbs and Croats both took part in a process we now call ethnic cleansing. In fact, the phrase ethnic cleansing was coined to describe the events taking place in the former Yugoslavia. Serbs removed Croats and Muslims from places under their control, while Croats removed Serbs and Muslims from places they controlled. There is no evidence of Bosniaks ethnically cleansing the areas they controlled. The United Nations Security Council has confirmed the Bosniaks did not take part in any systematic policy of ethnic cleansing. There is no peaceful method to forcefully remove hundreds or thousands of people from their homes. It is always a violent process, though there are levels to that violence. In Bosnia, the cleansing process might include mass murder, imprisonment within detention camps, and harassment. Bosnian villages, cities, and towns could be ethnically cleansed of Muslims even during ceasefires. In fact, ceasefires were an excellent opportunity to cleanse with less violence. During these brief, peaceful periods, the United Nations even helped with the process. 
The UN often transported Muslims from Serb or Croat-controlled regions to Bosnia-controlled regions. We've already mentioned several instances of violent ethnic cleansing in previous episodes. Let's now look at how one city was non-violently cleansed of Muslims. Banja Luka Banja Luka is located in northwest Bosnia. With a population over 140,000 in 1991, it was one of the largest cities in Bosnia. Even before the war, Banja Luka was predominantly Serb. Its 1991 census described a population of 50% Serb, 19% Muslim, and 10% Croat. Once the war started, the Bosnian Serbs wanted to remove the non-Serb population from Banja Luka, but they knew they could not just kill 42,000 people. Instead, they resorted to harassment and terror. Before the war, Banja Luka was home to a large JNA military base. After Bosnia seceded from Yugoslavia, the JNA pulled out of Banja Luka, but and left behind equipment and weapons for the Bosnian Serb militants to use in their ethnic wars against the Bosniaks and Croats. Banja Luka was also a major thoroughfare. It connected Serbia with Republika Srpska in Bosnia and Serbian Krajina in Croatia. Weapons, equipment, and supplies coming from Serbia often passed through Banja Luka before going to the Serbs in Croatia or the Serbs in Bosnia. Hence, Banja Luka was an important piece of the Serb superstate Milosevic and the other Serb nationalists were trying to create. Non-Serbs who wanted to leave Banja Luka, whether they were Bosniak or Croat, had to go through a complicated, bureaucratic process. They had to sign exit documents that did not include the right to return and cleared Republika Srpska of any responsibility. The documents also contained clauses stating that property left behind was voluntarily donated to Republika Srpska. A Serb woman who fled Banja Luka with her Muslim husband provided a detailed description of the bureaucratic exit process she endured. First, she and her husband had to get the exit papers. Then, they had to report their decision to leave at the local police department. This had to be done in person, and since thousands of people were trying to get out of Banja Luka, the station was always crowded. When she reported her decision, she had to provide exact details of where they planned to go. It was not enough to just leave Banja Luka. She had to give a name and address of their destination. The next step was to file their papers with the Ministry of Defense. Her husband and all other men wishing to leave had to turn over their military records, which they never got back. Going to the Ministry of Defense was a dangerous prospect. Some people were arrested on the spot and forced into Serb labor camps. Then she went to the Housing Commission to obtain a permit confirming she did not own any property. From there, she went to the post office to get certified letters confirming they did not have a telephone. Then she went to the bank to get certified letters confirming they did not owe the bank money. Of course, it often took several days to get the required documents from each of these government entities. 
Finally, she and her husband went back to the Ministry of Defense, paid 20 German marks, and received an exit visa that was good for 30 days. If they did not leave within that period, they'd have to start the entire process all over again. To leave Banja Luka, the couple had to pass through four checkpoints before arriving in Croatian territory. They were searched at each checkpoint. They could only bring their clothes and shoes. Once they arrived in Croatia, they had to pass through another series of checkpoints. Though complicated, this was a non-violent method of ethnic cleansing. Of course, the Serbs also used more intense methods. They destroyed over half the Catholic churches and buildings in Banja Luka and desecrated several Catholic cemeteries. Before the war, there were over 200 mosques in Banja Luka. By 1994, only two were left. Some of these mosques were over 400 years old. Several Muslim cemeteries were also desecrated and bulldozed. One of the mosques they destroyed was the Arnodia Mosque built in 1587 during the Ottoman era. Local UN staff members who attempted to stop the destruction were promptly arrested. There are stories of gangs of Serb nationalists forcing young boys to pull down their pants, then beating them if they were circumcised. These gangs also broke into people's houses, beat up the owners, and took whatever they wanted. In December 1993, four Serbs, two of whom were wearing uniforms, broke into a Muslim household in Banja Luka. They shot the husband, 58-year-old Aliya Karat, in the head. Then they beat his wife, 54-year-old Saniya Karat, to death. After murdering this couple in cold blood, the four men began looting the house. An elderly Muslim neighbor heard the screams and went to investigate. He walked in on one of the killers carrying a television set out of the house. They immediately shot and killed him. The very next day, a Serb family moved into the house and raised the Serbian flag. The Markel Massacre The single deadliest attack in Sarajevo occurred on February 5, 1994. A 120mm shell landed in the Markel marketplace in Sarajevo. 68 people were killed and another 144 were injured. Footage of the carnage was broadcast across the globe. The outrage at the horrific scene finally forced the UN and the US to take action. Throughout the war, the UN, EU, and even the US were hoping the Bosniaks would roll over and accept the Bosnian Serb demands. Some even believed the Bosniaks deserved their fate for rejecting the lopsided Owen Stoltenberg plan back in 1993. And many in the Western world believed the half-truth spewed by General Lewis Mackenzie on the nightly news. But the Markal attack changed all of that. The rest of the world began to doubt the UN's effectiveness if it couldn't stop the bloodshed in Bosnia. Despite the destruction this attack caused, it is likely the point where things began to change in Bosnia. The day after the attack, NATO gave the Serbs a new ultimatum. Move all heavy weapons back at least 20 kilometers from Sarajevo or expect airstrikes. On February 9th, 
NATO and the UN came to an agreement on the use of airstrikes. This time, the Serbs took the warning seriously and complied. This proved the violence could be curtailed if the major powers showed some backbone. On February 12th, Sarajevo enjoyed its first casualty-free day in nearly two years. And on February 23rd, Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Muslims signed a ceasefire agreement. NATO gets involved. NATO had been enforcing a UN-mandated no-fly rule over Bosnia since October 1992. But its first real action in the war came in late February 1994. Six Serbian so-called G-4 Super Galeb warplanes attacked a factory in Novi Travnik, violating the no-fly zone. Four American F-16s approached the Serbian planes as they tried to race back to Serbia and Croatia. After the Serbs ignored repeated demands to land immediately, the F-16s shot four of them out of the sky. The other two managed to escape. When asked about the fighting, President Clinton expressed support for NATO's actions. He said every attempt was made to prevent violence, but the Serb pilots ignored the warnings. British Prime Minister John Major echoed the same sentiment. There was no reason for these planes to be there, the British Premier said. They were there with hostile intent. They were given a warning. They declined that warning. They were shot down, and frankly, they could expect nothing else. A few weeks later, UNPRO-4 requested NATO air support for the first time. However, bureaucratic red tape, mostly due to UN Special Envoy Yasushi Akashi, prevented the planes from leaving on time. UN Incompetence The United Nations' reputation was taking a hit across the globe. Bosnia was not the only place where the UN looked weak, incompetent, and useless. In March 1993, North Korea announced its intention to withdraw from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. When the UN threatened sanctions, North Korea threatened to go to war. The United States finally brokered a deal with North Korea. This eased tensions but was only a temporary fix. Today, it is estimated North Korea has at least 30 nuclear warheads. A few months later, Saddam Hussein ordered UN weapons inspectors out of Iraq. He allowed the weapons inspectors back a few months later, but this was the beginning of a dangerous trend. A civil war in Somalia had led to a breakdown in society, which then led to a famine and mass starvation. The international community sent in aid, but much of this was stolen by the warring parties. UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali had shamed the United States for wanting more progress in Bosnia. He hinted the Americans were only interested because the Bosnians were white. In response to this accusation, the United States got involved in Somalia instead. In 1993, the United States took the lead in a UN mission to protect the relief supplies. The mission soon changed to hunting down one of the Somali clan leaders named Mohammed Idid. This led to the Battle of Mogadishu in October 1993, where 19 Americans were killed along with one Pakistani, one Malaysian, and at least 700 Somalis. 
The United Nations ended its mission in Somalia in 1995 without making much of a difference. In October 1993, the UN sent a mission to stabilize Haiti after a coup had removed its U.S.-backed president. The Haitian military blocked UN entry, resulting in economic sanctions. The United States finally sent warships to the island and the UN mission was allowed entry. In April 1994, another genocide was taking place in the African nation of Rwanda. For three months, the Hutus, the largest ethnic group in Rwanda, killed half a million of their Tutsi rivals. During this period, the United Nations did little, if anything, to stop the killing. While the Hutus were killing the Tutsis in Rwanda, UN Special Envoy Yasushi Akashi was meeting with Slobodan Milosevic in Belgrade. Meanwhile, the Serbs ignored ceasefire demands, blew up hospitals, and killed babies in Garage Day. Garage Day Two months after the Markel attack in Sarajevo, the Bosnian Serbs launched an audacious attack on Garage Day. This was not the first time the Serbs put Garage Day under siege. The predominantly Muslim city had been under constant attacks as Bosnia declared independence in May 1992. To protect the Muslim enclave, the UN declared Garage Day a safe area in 1993. Safe area or not, the Serbs were determined to take Garage Day. It was a critical link connecting their territory in eastern Bosnia with southwestern Bosnia. After the UN and NATO ultimatum following the market massacre, the Serbs shifted their artillery to Garage Day about 30 miles southwest of Sarajevo. The Serbs began shelling Garage Day on March 29th. Within two days, 50 Serb tanks had breached Garazde's defenses and entered the city. Bosnian President Alija Izetbegovic wrote to President Clinton asking for immediate action against the Serb threat. Ismet Briga, the mayor of Garazde, sent President Clinton a message via ham radio begging the United States to bomb Garazde. Gather the courage to bomb us, the mayor said. Stop the agony of the people of Garage Day. We beg for airstrikes against the citizens of Garage Day. Perhaps still reeling from the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia, President Clinton initially refused to use force in Garage Day. But public pressure and media criticism finally moved him to do something. The UN commander in Bosnia and Herzegovina was British General Michael Rose. He warned the Serbs of airstrikes if they did not withdraw their heavy weapons. On April 9, 1994, NATO commanders announced they were ready to strike if the UN asked for it. On April 11th, the UN asked for it. Two American F-16s attacked Serb targets near Garajde. These airstrikes barely affected the Bosnia-Serb war machine, but they sent a message. Eighteen minutes after the airstrikes, the artillery bombardment stopped. The Serbs eventually agreed to move their weapons outside a 20-kilometer radius. Bosnian Prime Minister Haris Selajic later remarked during a press conference, We've always said the Serbs only understand force. This was the first time NATO airstrikes were used to stop a Serb offensive. But this was only temporary. 
General Radko Mladic ordered his forces to surround UN personnel working nearby. He threatened to kill these hostages if there were any additional airstrikes. The Serbs resumed their attack on Garage the following day. The shelling destroyed a local hospital and got dangerously close to UN buildings. On April 16th, the Serbs intensified their attack on the beleaguered town. Once again, General Rose called for airstrikes. Four American A-10 Thunderbolts and two British Harrier jets responded to the call. The A-10 Thunderbolt, also known as Warthogs, is designed to provide close aerial support to ground troops. It is especially adept at laying down heavy machine gun fire and destroying tanks. The Harrier jet, favored by the UK, is unique in its ability to take off vertically. Weather conditions that day forced these fancy aircraft to fly low and make several turns as they hunted for Serb tanks. But the Serbs had learned their lesson and knew to hide their tanks under trees when airstrikes were imminent. The pilots eventually called off the hunt as they were nearly out of fuel. However, as they were about to return to base, one of the Harrier jets were hit by a surface-to-air missile. The pilot ejected in time and landed safely. He was rescued by Bosniaks who had witnessed the whole thing. The siege of Garage continued for another week. NATO responded with minimal airstrikes, never really unleashing its full might against the Serbs. Even these lackluster airstrikes only came after the Serbs had ignored multiple warnings. NATO could have wiped out the entire Bosnian Serb military in a week. Yet, it did little more than attack a few tanks and artillery pieces. This weak response allowed the Serbs to continue their blistering attack on Garajde. Many NATO officials placed the blame for this bizarre policy on UN Special Envoy Yasushi Akashi. Like his boss, Boutros Boutros Ghali, Akashi was determined to bring peace by talking with the Serbs. On more than one occasion, Yasushi Akashi gave in to the Serbs and vetoed NATO airstrikes. The Serbs did not agree to a ceasefire until April 22, 1993. By then, Garajde had been under siege for nearly a month and over 500 civilians were dead. Tuzla On April 29th, Serb artillery attacked a UN post near Tuzla, a small town about 50 miles north of Sarajevo. The United Nations brought eight Danish Leopard tanks into the region and sent 72 shells blasting into Serb positions in the nearby mountains. The tank battle, the first of its kind in the war so far, lasted about 90 minutes. This surprising show of force by the UN killed nine Serb combatants. Combined with the airstrikes in Garage Day, many thought this might be an indication the United Nations was getting tough with the Serbs. But this was not the case. Boutros Boutros Ghali and Yasushi Akashi continued to waffle with the Serbs and allow them to get away with mass murder. In the next episode, we'll discuss U.S. efforts to end the war. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content 
by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. The Islamic Vibes Podcast is a weekly podcast brought to you by Islamic activist and history enthusiast Majid Hussein, a.k.a. at Muslim Podcaster. His What's Happening Muslims show is an unscripted and casual chat with fellow brothers about the current issues which every Muslim needs to know. While his Just Thinking show is a thought-providing discussion with esteemed and expert guests on specific Islamic topics. Brother Majid interviewed me on episode 19 of the Islamic Vibes podcast and I highly encourage you to go listen to it. The Islamic Vibes podcast, keeping those vibes Islamic. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season one of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 1-12. We're taking a break from the fighting in the eastern provinces of the Umayyad Caliphate to see how things are going in the west. In particular, we're going to discuss the relationship between the Muslim rulers who were in the minority and their Christian subjects. Let's begin by acknowledging a few population realities of the Muslim world at this time. The Muslims were a minority in Iraq, Syria, Jerusalem, and Egypt for several centuries. Christians would have been the majority in Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, while Zoroastrians would have been the majority in Iraq and Persia. Muslims did not become the majority in these regions until around the 10th century. Now, this reality probably or perhaps instructed how the Muslims of this early era dealt with their non-Muslim subjects. They would have figured that it would be easier to rule over this majority non-Muslim, non-Arab population if they were allowed to freely practice their faiths. Besides, we have an example of this from Prophet Muhammad wasallam, and how he dealt with the non-Muslims living under his authority. Now, in this episode, we're going to mostly discuss the, the interactions between the Umayyads and Christians. When it comes to Jews and Zoroastrians under the Umayyad rule, we don't have as much reliable information. 
There just isn't that much information from a Jewish standpoint, that is, regarding the treatment of Jews by the Muslim rulers of this era. There is some information from Zoroastrian sources regarding Umayyad rule. However, much of this information was written over a century after the Umayyad dynasty ended, and so there is some doubt as to how accurate it truly is. Now, we have to divide the relationship between the Umayyads and their Christian subjects into two different eras. There is the early era of the Umayyad dynasty, or maybe perhaps I should say the pre-Ibn Zubair era, and then there is the post-Ibn Zubair era. We'll see how they differ. Now, first of all, I want to make sure that we understand that the, the real first Umayyad caliph was actually Uthman ibn Affan. He was an Umayyad, and he was the first member of that clan to be the caliph. However, he is considered one of the four righteous caliphs, and he spent most of his time in the Hijaz, which was 100% Muslim by this time, and it is unlikely he had any regular interaction with non-Muslims by the time he was caliph. Now, if we go a little bit further back to the time of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, there is evidence and there were episodes of interaction between Prophet Muhammad and non-Muslims, of course, the pagans, as well as the Jews who lived in Medina, but also there was some Muslim-Christian interaction. For instance, there were the Sahaba who fled to Abyssinia to escape the persecution in Mecca, and then there was also the Battle of Mu'ta in 888, just before the Battle of, of Mecca. Now, once the Muslims started conquering and spreading beyond the Hejaz and beyond the Arabian Peninsula into Iraq and Persia and Anatolia and Syria and Egypt and on into North Africa, once Islam, the Islamic rule began to spread into these areas, Muslims naturally came into contact with people from various different groups, but particularly Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, and also other minor religious groups. So when the Muslims conquered these, era, these areas, most of the time you'd have a situation where you had Muslim slash Arab conquerors ruling over a non-Muslim, non-Arab majority. So the Muslim Arab conquerors were a minority ruling over a non-Muslim, non-Arab majority. Now before the civil war between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads, Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan had established strong relations and strong ties with the Christian community of Syria. Let's understand that he was governor of Syria for 20 years before he became the caliph, and then he was caliph for another 20 years. So that was 40 years that he ruled pretty much from Syria, from Damascus, and he was able to use this period of time to build strong ties and relationships with the Christians there. In particular was his relationship with the with the Arab Christian tribe that's known as Banu Kalb. They were, they were one of the dominant tribes of Syria. 